Let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word that transforms us. Thank you for your Son, Supreme, the Supreme Word, who's given us this uh, challenging parable. Thank you for your Spirit, who's working in our hearts. We want to see your Son as Supreme. We want to follow your kingdom values, Father, and this by the power of your Spirit. May this be true as we hear your word. May we be good soil from whom the word is sown deeply and bears a harvest. We trust this by your grace and your empowerment. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 20. A few uh, introductory comments about my choice for the sermon. It's, um, a few uh, weeks ago in preparing for this, I actually had a different uh, message in mind from Luke chapter 11. I knew I wanted to do a parable. And Luke chapter 11, I love, uh, it's the parable of the friend who comes at midnight needing bread. But the more I wrestled with that text, the more I realized a half an hour is not going to cut it on this parable. The logic of how much more is really difficult to grasp, and it takes a lot of explaining and wrestling and engaging with the text. And so I decided to do a parable I've never done before, Uh, Matthew chapter 20. The irony of it is, uh, this is not the easiest parable either. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll read to you a quote from a fellow by the name of Klein Snodgrass. He has a massive commentary on parables, and this is what he says about this parable. I consider this one of the three most difficult parables. It's not that it presents numerous difficult issues. The problems are relatively easy, uh, except two. The identity of the audience and the meaning of the parable. So anybody who does parable research knows those are the two keys to parable interpretation. So it was too late at this point. I said, we're going to do it anyway. I can trust Jerusalem Church to engage the text well and to help me in the process. Uh, So just to warn you in advance, it is a little bit of a difficult parable to understand as far as our cognitive apparatus, our, our intellect is concerned. It's difficult to understand why is this placed here? What is this parable saying? And perhaps you felt that when Joyce was reading the parable. So it is difficult intellectually. We're going to work through that. But it's also very difficult on an effective and a volitional level. Once you understand the meaning of the parable, it is very difficult to want to receive it and to accept that this is God's kingdom and then to be transformed in the process. Um, I'm going to try to help with the intellectual uh, walking through the the text, but I trust the Spirit of God to help you when you receive it to apply it uh, in your own life. There's three things that you must do when it comes to interpreting a parable, knowing that they are difficult. And I'm going to walk you through each of those briefly before we actually jump into Matthew chapter 20. The three things are, first of all, the parables of Jesus. I want to explain what a parable is. Second is the literary context. And then third is the historical context. We'll talk about that briefly in Matthew 20, verse 1. First thing is the parables of Jesus. In the ancient world, they would call them parables, but they'd also call them fables. Uh, The famous definition of a Fable, we know as many of Jesus' parables as this. It's a fictitious story giving an image of truth. And uh, that's the first thing you have to understand about parables, and I'll illustrate it for you here. So you have a fictitious story that Jesus is presenting, or an ancient sage or teacher. But then you have the real world. So a fictitious story is giving an image of truth. And because of this, the parable operates by power of analogy or correspondence, where there are certain entities in this fictitious story world that have a matching value in our real world. And so we have to understand that's how a parable works. So as we're reading the parable, you are assigning values and significance and characters into the real world. That's how it operates. So it's always essential to ask, what is the correspondence? What's the analogy? We know here the owner of the vineyard is, of course, the activity of God in his kingdom. The vineyard 
owner, the vineyard workers uh, are going to be Peter and the disciples in the literary context. But that's not all you do in a parable. The real, parable of an, a real power in the parable comes about when you do a match, or what we call a transference. The value of transference means you come into the story world, you enter the fictitious story, find that you're making values and judgments on the characters and the activities. You're happy, you're not happy. You find that you're actually judged in the process of coming out the parable world. You enter into the real world only to find that you wish the real world isn't the world you wanted it to be, and you're not sure you want to accept this world or this world. So there's a powerful transformation that it takes place, not only intellectually, but emotionally, and then, of course, volitionally. Now, as I was working through this parable, I realized that I needed some help. So I did what any good Bible professor does, and I called the assistance of my students. So we wrestled with Matthew chapter 20 for quite a while. And one of the students in particular uh, showed me that they had understood the power of this parable when I asked them, tell me what you're emotionally experiencing when you work through this parable. And so she said this, as I worked through the power of the parable, I first felt frustration. I felt frustration because it was not fair the way the wages were being earned and given. I was upset with the landowner. Then I worked from frustration to shock to realize that if this is representing the kingdom of God, my perceptions and my values are not God's values. Then I worked from shock to gratitude. If this really is a reflection of the kingdom of God, I'm extremely grateful that God has been generous and good to me. And then the final response I felt was love. Love for others and love for God. And I would encourage you, as you work through this parable, that is the power of a parable when it's effective in our life, according to the parables of Jesus. So identify the analogies, but allow the power of the word to affect in you a a response where you say, this is what I understand is happening in my own life. Now, when I enter the world of God and the kingdom, is this what I think it should be, and how can I be transformed in the process? So that's the first thing, is the nature of parables. The second is the literary context. So I want to walk you through that briefly. If you do have your Bibles, it would be very helpful to get those out uh, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Just a brief walkthrough of the context. The parables are like beautiful flowers in a meadow. Once you pull up a beautiful flower in the meadow, the beautiful color of the flower starts to die. So you have to place the parable back in its literary context, back in its soil. So we are hopelessly lost unless we place this in the surrounding context. And this is the critical component for us with parable interpretation. You can make a parable say whatever you want it to say until you ground it into its rightful place in the text. So we're going to have to do that here to make sure we're true to Jesus' original meaning. So as you're looking there at Matthew chapter 19, real briefly, as you're scanning 19, just by way of comment, Matthew chapter 18 first is where we're presented with Jesus' kingdom reversals. So he's beginning to explain to his disciples that the nature of the kingdom, as far as its citizens, is not what you would expect it to be. In the nature of the kingdom, you give honor to the least. You go after those who are little. You extend extravagant forgiveness. You take sin very seriously, and you love beyond bounds. That's Matthew chapter 18 in a nutshell. It's reversing what we would suppose the kingdom of God to be. And it's interesting, as in Matthew chapter 18 and 19, in each of these instances, the disciples or Peter raises a question, and it drives home a response from Jesus. So you see that in Matthew chapter 18. If you're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter's famous comment, we know this, is how many times should I forgive? Seventy times seven. That leads to Jesus' magnificent parable of the debtors. 
And we're going to see this pattern develop. Jesus explains the nature of the kingdom and its values, and the disciples have a retort or rebuttal or a comment. So as we're working through this, we have to keep in mind that Jesus is explaining to them the nature of the kingdom, and that is very contrary to the world's values and systems. So going into Matthew chapter 19, we have the subject of the theme of marriage. We see that there is a significant reversal of values when it comes to the kingdom of God and how those within the kingdom respond to marriage. As a matter of fact, it's such a reversal that the disciples can't help but comment on Jesus' teaching on marriage. If you look at verse 10, it says, The disciples said to him, said to Jesus, if, this, is this, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to be married. And so Jesus then lands into, no, you've misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God when it comes to marriage. It's a radical reversal. Then we get into 19, 13 through 15 where we're looking at the way Jesus relates to little children, and that social context, little children, represents the insignificant or the least. Those without claim to fame, those without status or preferential treatment. They have no resume, no clout, no status. The disciples are stopping people from laying, Jesus laying his hands on them, and then he responds again. The disciples have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. In verse 14, Jesus says, Let the children alone, don't hinder them from coming to me, For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So the nature of the kingdom is not the way you suppose it to be. Little children are valued. Those who are insignificant are cherished. And we realize very quickly that if you're in the kingdom of God, it means you came in with no claim to fame, simply by God's grace. That sets this contrast for us in the very next passage, which begins with Matthew 19, verse 16, and ends with verse 30. There we have a story of a rich young man and Peter's response to the rich young man. And I'd like to pick it up here in verse 21. So after the rich young ruler is asking what he must do to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus provides him with a list from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and as well as one from Leviticus. And Jesus says in verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So we don't want to downplay the nature of discipleship. Discipleship is real. It means committing to Jesus Christ first and above all else. It means he is your treasure and you're willing to renounce possessions for the sake of Christ. So as we're working through the nature of discipleship, we have to realize that Jesus is the treasure uh, first and foremost. Upon hearing the response that loving your neighbor means actually being charitable toward them and putting Jesus first, the rich man, of course, goes away sad. But Jesus has told him that you will have treasure in heaven because of your commitment to Christ. And that launches Peter into his question in verse 27. Peter said to him, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will it be for us? The rich young ruler is promised treasure. He goes away sad, dejected. Now, in the first century, a rich person is someone who would have great honor and status and clout. So Peter's question naturally is, he's left, he's not showing himself one of us, so what's there for us? What is in it? Now, many commentators note at this point that Peter has a view, has a certain smugness to him. He's left, but we've stayed. And a certain mercenary perspective, which is, God, you owe us. We've been in this for the long haul, 
from Matthew chapter 4, we've left everything to follow you, what do we get? And so wrapped up in Peter's question is an implicit assumption that we've done more than this fellow, we get something more, and what is our honor and status in society because of what we've done for you? And you have to couch it in that context to understand what Jesus does next. So as Jesus responds to Peter, his response is very interesting. In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, those who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So up to this point, we say, thank you, Lord. You're gracious. You do give us a reward for serving you. So he is answering Peter's question in a positive way. And we have to recognize that. That's how that operates in the parable. The Lord is faithful to reward good discipleship. But the kicker is verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That actually forms uh, what we call an inclusio, which are bookends to this parable. The parable starts with verse 30, and if you're looking at Matthew chapter 20, in verse 16, the very same proverb is given again the very same maxim. So we have to couch this parable with the understanding that the kingdom of God reverses our anticipation and expectations, and things are not what the world judges them to be. The first are last, the last are first. And this is where the parable becomes rather difficult. Uh, Klein Snodgrass says this, the disciples, like most humans, were into calculating reward and seeking privilege. Do not we do the same? We always fault Peter, but then we always realize we're just like him. Peter's question was, what do we get for following? And he was assured that the reward is great. But does the promise of reward create status and ranking among the people of God? And we just have to stop there and realize that, no, Peter's question is extremely natural. This is a question we would all have. I have followed you for quite the distance, Christ. What do I get? And am I honored in society because of it? Am I even honored in the church? Do we have an hierarchy in the church? Do we work by status, by rank, by position, by title? And so this is then what launches us into the parable. So that's the literary context. The final thing I'd like to discuss then very briefly is the historical context. So in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, we start on the parable, explain a few details. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. Now, this landowner is an affluent individual. Usually, you would just have olive crops, but the vineyard would actually better uh, better a cash crop. It was harder to work, harder to yield a produce, but when it did, it yielded in surplus beyond just what the normal olives would have produced. So this individual is somewhat affluent. We see this is like the kingdom of God and his activity, and he's doing what a normal owner would do when the vineyard, the harvest, comes. He would go out into the marketplace and hire workers. He's going to hire what we call day laborers. Uh, Just to understand the way a day day laborer operates, they are a little higher than a slave as far as being free, but a little less than a slave when it comes to ease of life and comfortability and, and, and actual security. Because a slave, at the least, could rely upon the fact that for their master, they were a financial investment. And so the master's going to care for you, he's going to clothe you, he's going to feed you. That's what a slave gets. 
For a day laborer, they were at subsistence level at best. They would go into the marketplace and just hope to be hired for the day to make a measly denarius, which was a day wage for a normal day laborer. Estimate conservatives, you needed at least 200 denarius a year to survive. And if you add a family to that, and this is your pay, you are subsistence level at best. You are barely at the point where you're not going to go under because of the cost involved. So they're doing what is natural, going to the marketplace. And from what we know about day, uh, the owners of vineyards in the first century, they were uh, penny thrifty, and they would do what they did to, to save a buck. So they would actually increment the day laborers out into the field at certain stages of the day to make sure they didn't have to pay everybody an equal amount. This is a natural response, and they actually have texts on how you do this with the day laborers. So we're seeing an activity that is very common in the first century. So you have this view of a day laborer who is at the mercy of someone to hire him or her. And you have this landowner who is going to be pinching pennies and thrifty-wise when it comes to commerce. And this is where the parable begins to surprise us. What I've done is I've divided this text up into different acts according to, uh, in the Greek text they use a two-letter word, it's de, which is a conjunction in Greek. It means the narrative is moving on to a new step. So what you're seeing on the screen is the second, what I call the second act. So he has already hired the laborers, and now in verse 2 they're going to agree for the common amount, which is denarius for a day. He sends them into the vineyard, and you would normally begin your day, it's a 12-hour day when it's harvest time, so you have 6 to, in the morning to 6 at night. So that's how you calculate time. So the first hour would, of course, be 6 in the morning. He went out to the third hour, which, of course, would then be approximately 9 o'clock in the morning, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I'll give it to you. Now, it's not going to be denarius, but the day laborer needs to be paid something, so he's going to trust the goodness uh, and the equity of the landowner to provide for them. And that's the the second act in the text as we work through. Act number three, and so they went out. Again, he went about the sixth hour, so that would be 12 o'clock, about 12 o'clock, and the ninth hour he's going out about 3 o'clock, and he does the same thing. Constantly going out to hire. Next act, number four, verse six, about the 11th hour. This is five o'clock, one more hour of work. He went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day without work? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go out into the vineyard as well. And for the first time, we actually have uh, someone other than the landowner making some verbal, uh, verbal speech here in the text. And so we're drawn into an understanding of what the predicament and plight of this individual is. What's interesting is, and the reason I chose the NASB, is you have those asterisks. Do you see those in verse 6 and in verse 7? So in the NASB, there's actually signaling to you, uh, we can't do this in English, it's very awkward, but what we call the present tense, which is instead of you say past tense, which is he said... Present tense was he says or he's saying. And it's awkward, so you can't really translate this well. But what the effect of this in the Greek is, it actually throws your attention to not simply what's said, but something coming right after that. 
you're anticipating a significant movement in the text, which actually for us will come at verse, verse 9 when they're actually paid. But here's how this works, just to identify this. So an illustration today would be like this. Watch the present tense, the past tense. Jack said to Jill, past tense. Jack said to Jill, hello. Jill said, past tense to Jack, hi to you as well. (laughs) Present tense. Jack says to Jill, you look pretty today. Would you like to go on a date? (laughs) Present tense. Now, what does that do for us? Something significant is now happening in the text, and I really want to know if she's going to say yes or no. So we're anticipating this moment of what exactly is going to happen for those who are paid, for those who are working just one hour of the day, and how much are they actually going to be paid. That throws us forward then to the next act, which is verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said, and you see the present tense one more time. So we're, we're anticipating what is going to happen when the payment occurs, especially for the focus of attention was on the day laborer who went out at the 11th hour. So he said to his foreman, or he sang to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Interesting way the order would work. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received, and this is the surprise of surprises, each one of them received an denarius. They only worked for one hour. Now, uh, the response of them, I'm sure, is one of utter incomprehension. This is a very foolish vineyard owner. He's not going to make it if he continues to operate this way commercially in the marketplace. But the center of attention actually isn't very long on the response of the people who work at the 11th hour. Our attention is going to be riveted on another group. And then you have to realize, hmm, this other group might then just be the question of Peter. And now it's being answered more significantly. So, verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. The word more there is actually fronted in the Greek, so they're saying more I'm going to receive for emphasis. Of course I'm going to receive more. I've seen what they've gotten. Now more is mine. It's the first time we actually have a, uh, a mental projection into the, the, uh, the thought process of the ones who worked at 6 o'clock in the morning. They thought they would receive more, but the surprise is each of them also received a denarius. Now, I don't know if Jesus paused at that point in the parable, but maybe it's helpful for us to actually pause for a moment to realize that this is not expected. He was exceptionally generous, but what's going on with the payment? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it right? Is this the way our own society operates as far as transactions and precise calculations? Next, next act. When they received it, <clears throat> they did what we do, which is what Peter does. They grumbled at the landowner. Now you have a behavior, not only the mental process, but the behavior of the grumbling of this first group. And this is what they say. These last men have worked only one hour. That's fronted in the Greek. So one hour is all they worked, and they got what we got. And you have made them equal to us, equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And we all say, yeah, that's right. That's right, landowner. Hear what they're saying. It's unjust. It's not precise calculations. But this is what 
The vineyard owner says in verse 13, he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So the issue is not justice. (laughs) I'm giving you what we agreed upon. There's another issue that really bothers the day laborer. Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give it to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye evil or envious because mine is generous or good? In Proverbs 28, an evil eye is someone who has greed. Proverbs 22, a good eye is someone who is charitable and loves to be generous and give to the poor. And then we end with the inclusio of verse 16, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's a surprise. The difficulty, though, in this parable is this is a reflection of the way the kingdom of God operates. So you have, a, you, have a, you have to ask yourself, is this true of the kingdom of God? And evidently it is for Jesus. So now you leave the parable world and say, is, is this the correct matchup for the way God actually operates? I'm not comfortable with this. And that uh, raises the, the quote. Do we have that quote? We can flash that up. Um, let's do two more, Kevin. Uh, one more past that. It's okay. I'll actually read it. No problem. Uh, we'll, we'll do this one. This is great. The God who is generous far beyond what could be expected is also never less than just. But to think in terms of contractual obligations is to miss the point of the kingdom of heaven. God's goodness is far more generous than that. By contrast, the calculating comparison of rewards is a mark of the bad eye, which is a biblical image for stinginess and jealousy. It effectively sets human standards of fairness in contrast with God's uncalculating love. Snodgrass says this, If the parable is about the goodness of God then it asks that we give up envy and calculation of reward and rather both embrace and imitate God's goodness. That means that we will give up the quest to be first, knowing that God's standards are different than what appears. Now, um, here's my own existential confrontation with a parable, and then I want to challenge you with it. When I first worked through this parable, I said, this is a fascinating parable about the kingdom of God, but I'm not like Peter. I'm not looking at a rich person and thinking honor and status. I don't deal with that in my environment. And I don't deal with it like Matthew's audience who is having to receive Gentiles as well as they're receiving the Jews. So what's the issue for me? I don't see that I deal with envy or jealousy or miscalculations. And then I started to realize as I looked around and the spirit was convicting me, I do this. I do this continually. Well, how do you do this? Well, this is one way. Jerusalem Church, we've been around for a long time. You can say we've been working in the vineyard for a while. 1730? 1727, so even a little later. Uh, I serve on the elder board. Uh, We serve with a lot of joy and uh, with some sorrow, right? So... Our expectation of God, how are you going to reward and bless a church that's been trying to treasure you for this long? Where's the blessing? Is it according to my calculations? And then, 
I'm seeing someone else getting paid. So we have churches here in Lancaster County that have been here for 10 years, five years, 30 years. What's my heart? Do I say, thank you, God, that as generous as you are with me, you are being generous with them. I want to bless them. I want to love them. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in the community of faith, not only in Lancaster County, but in America and in the churches that are popping up around the world. So I I find that I'm very much like Peter. And then uh, I have situations in, in school and also at church and ministry where I see young believers who are getting blessed their socks off. And I say, Lord, I've been serving you for... Now, it's been brief compared to some of you, but I've been serving you for 20 years. And I know you're blessing me. But if I compare myself, could you cut me some slack? And give me a little bit more of those blessings that that person's getting. Does everyone see how this works? Uh, This is our natural human response apart from the Spirit of God. And then I had the the gall, um, the naivete, to ask my son Caleb a few questions after I closed the book on the parable and wrestled with it. I said, Caleb, I said, I teach Bible college students. Now, I had walked him through this parable, and then I said, nothing else. And I wanted to talk to him about honor and status. I said, Caleb, Daddy's been teaching the Bible for many years. Who's more valuable in the kingdom? Me. Or your mother. (laughs) I said, now mommy's job is very important too. She services students and she's been doing it for 20 years. I couldn't do what she does. But as far as honor, I would expect, you know, our Christian pop culture would say, well, it's the teacher, the preacher. And then I said, Caleb, when we get to heaven, whose reward is going to be greater? Mine, who's been teaching Bible so faithfully and diligently? Or mommy's, who's been at the computer servicing students for years and years? I'm not going to tell you his response. But doesn't those questions even set us off on the issue of, yeah, well, this is how we operate. We operate like Peter. So uh, now I want to take the responsibility off me and ask you, uh, how do you respond? Are you like Peter? Do you work on rank and honor and scale and status in the kingdom of God? Is there really an hierarchy among us as servants of Christ? Peter wants it. Is it true? that an elder at Jerusalem has more honor and reward than someone who vacuums. See, the kingdom of God is very uncomfortable, and it's not what you suppose it to be. And that is such a blessing to us, because we know God always operates on grace anyway. I'm grateful that he's blessing me. Now, what's your response? Is there any insignificant ministry in Jerusalem? I dare say there is not the teaching of the parable. How about the way we relate to other churches? Are you praying for them? Are you loving them deeply? How about other disciples of Christ? And your life is tough. God's blessing you, you know it, but you're looking at them saying, could you send a little bit more of that my way? Envy, precise calculations, the Lord doesn't work that way. Aren't you glad he doesn't work that way? 
And the irony of the kingdom often is those who think they're first are actually the last. So whereas I say I should have the most honor, perhaps I'm the person who is so grateful and should be that I just got the denarius. And so again, Jesus' parables of the kingdom upset status quo. They upset our rank, our precise calculations, and they all go back to the glory and generosity of God. And the parable asks us to be the same. Do we reflect the kingdom of God in our own life? Do you? Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your kingdom. If this was my kingdom, it would not operate this way, and it would be ugly. I thank you for your Son, who opens the doors of great grace to each of us to receive your mercy and your generosity. May we be filled with gratitude for your response toward us. May we be shocked and surprised and then revel in the fact that you bless because of the merits of your Son and not because of our own merit. Thank you. Your reward is simply one of grace. May we treat other people in response so that your Son is magnified. In his name we pray. Amen.